0: There's a teaching handout that you were given on the way in, but if you didn't get one, raise your hand. Yes, and there are people coming to you with one. Keep that hand up, and that will help you to follow along. Um, some fill-in-the-blanks and some, uh, some of the notes and scriptures that you can take home with you um, and study. Also, in a few moments, I uh, will ask you, give you some prompts so that you can add your thoughts to the conversation. I bet already you have thoughts as we're thinking about God's will versus our will, and uh, that number's on the screen. It's also in the handout, and it will come back up here in a few moments. Yeah, we'll let you add to the conversation. Okay, let's stand and let's read together <clears throat> the scriptures this morning. <clears throat> You read the words in yellow. I'll read the words in white. Genesis fifty eighteen through 20. Then his brothers also wept, fell before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. James 1, 13 through 15, no one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one, but one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Today, out of the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was recently not selected to speak to other pastors about a topic that I have spent a lot of time developing. And I felt disappointed. And I felt as though helping other pastors growing and learning about what I had learned is a part of my purpose. And I felt undervalued. At that moment, I had a fresh experience of what it feels like when my will is not done. As I reflected on that moment, I realized that I must pray the Lord's Prayer more often. I must orient my heart to thy will, or as Donnie taught us, your will be done. Perhaps, you know, I... I've sat with a lot of you and talked with you over the years, and perhaps there's no greater question for the modern Christian than what is God's will for my life? What direction? What should I do next? For what purpose am I born with? And these are all uh, legitimate questions. Um, In a way, they point to the way in which we humans of the western world are taught to perceive ourselves in an era of machines for example um, machines have a specific purpose and we might reflect on the possible output of our own lives and wonder for what outcome are we made and it's a very popular idea what is my purpose? How will I be productive? Um, How is what God has given me going to be utilized to make something happen in the world? And it's no wonder we think that way. Think of all the machines that we're surrounded by um, that have specific outcomes. The car that gets us from A to B, fingers crossed, the microwave that takes something that is cold and makes it hot, etc. In an era of machines, we tend to think of ourselves a bit like machines. We don't know that we do, but I think that we do. Related, also we live in an era of mathematics. And when we ask ourselves, what do I do next, we often are thinking in a very linear fashion. Our ability to utilize mathematics to determine precise outcomes based upon precise data input, inputs leads us to think of our life connecting in that kind of way. Thinking that is heavily influenced by machines and mathematics makes God's will seem super precise and easily missed. In a way, <clears throat> it is true that the, the will of God or God's way is very particular. However, God's will does not depend on us making all of the right decisions or self-determining our purpose. We feel this big burden that maybe God will reveal to me my ultimate purpose and then once I have that, I can achieve that purpose and then I will be in God's will. Rather, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, to orient our hearts, to be formed as people that want what God wants. Praying the Lord's Prayer is a part of how we are slowly, slowly formed into a people who wants what he wants. A popular worship song from about 15 years ago, I love this little line of it. It prays, break my heart for what breaks yours. When we think about God's will, when we begin to desire what he desires, we automatically begin to walk in his will. But each of us, each of us, because of the, the world that we live in, we have quite a long way to go because we interpret the world according to our will, according to our desires, according to our prejudices. I don't like everything that Richard Rohr writes, just so you know, as I put a quote from him up here. But I do like this quote from Richard Rohr. Most people do not see things as they are. Rather, they see things as they are. If we do not allow God to reshape us, we will continue to see life and our decisions according to our own will. The scriptures retrain us and reform us, so we begin to see with eyes of faith, God has already been stirring our faith this morning. Donnie used the word trust. That's a, that's a great word as well, that he's wanting us to trust him. So today, we briefly look at the life of Joseph, who discovered how God's will is even able to turn evil towards good. And when we start to see the creative ability of God, we start to recognize ah. When we align ourselves with him, it's very good. Okay, so, some summary and of the life of Joseph taken out of Genesis 37 through 50. And, uh, and then we'll get into a couple of specific verses about this. So, you might be familiar with this story. Many of you probably are. Others of you might be hearing it for the first time. So, Joseph is a prominent character in the last 14 chapters of Genesis So Joseph had many brothers, and Genesis 37 tells us that uh, Joseph was his his father, Jacob's uh, favorite son. Um, So that's who he was, and Jacob made Joseph a special tunic. Some interpreters say is a coat of many colors. You've probably heard that uh, about the coat of many colors. Danya thought that I should show Kramer up here um, with the coat of many colors on, but I I didn't bother to do that. But but at age 17, Joseph, probably feeling the full approval of his father, um, probably just acting like 17-year-olds do, which I can say very freely because all the 17-year-olds are at camp right now. (laughs) (laughs) he arrogantly boasted to his brothers about a dream that he had. And in that dream, his brothers, they bowed down to him. So you just imagine Joseph tells them this dream, you know. And uh, what would you feel if your arrogant brother happily told you a dream in which you bowed to him? How would you feel? Yeah, probably irritated, right? Yeah. Um, Caleb, did you tell your brothers these kinds of dreams? You didn't dare. That's right, yeah. Because you know what happens with the rest of the story. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and then, later, Joseph tells his brothers and his father a dream which strongly insinuated that all of them would bow down to Joseph. Um, he is certainly 17 years old. He is truly arrogant. His father rebuked him, and his brother's jealousy grew. I think we understand that dynamic, right? Yeah. Family dynamics. Yep. Well, Joseph's brothers decided to take the future into their hands. They said, our will be done. They sold Joseph into slavery. They covered up the whole thing by lying to their father, saying that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. In this way, they created a narrative that reinforced their ideals. Their ideals? Arrogant people get what's coming to them. And we can imagine that over time, they even began to believe their own lies. It is much easier to believe that arrogant little brothers get what is coming to them at the hand of wild animals than it is to believe that God can work good despite arrogant little brothers. Now, I'm speculating here for a moment. Indulge me. But as the family lie grew, We can imagine that Joseph's brothers perhaps taught their own children a lesson. You've heard about Uncle Joseph, haven't you? (laughs) Arrogant dreamers get eaten by wild animals. Kids, the moral of the story, God stops those who are arrogant. That's what you learned, the moral of the story. (laughs) That's right. Don't you dare tell your brothers that sort of thing. However... Unbeknownst to his brothers, Joseph finds favor with his master and then through an extraordinary set of events, he finds himself as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And wouldn't you know it, as a result of a famine, Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt to beg for food. They do indeed bow before Joseph, who has managed to create a vast storehouse of grain that will feed much of the known world during the famine. The brothers don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. And in one of the most moving scenes in scripture, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, weeping. In Genesis, as we read this, we imagine the shock of his brothers. But Joseph has learned something about the will of God. And in two scriptures, we see what he has learned. He says to his brothers, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. And then after his father dies, Jacob dies, his brothers are again deeply concerned that now Joseph is going to turn on them. And at the end of Genesis 50 We read, then his brothers also wept and fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. What you intended for evil, God was able to turn for good. We'll make three points about God's will today. The first fill in the blank. Number one, God's will is for good. At times, we have a hard time believing that God's will is for good. It's like convincing young 19-year-old Isaac that avocados are good. (laughs) I was sitting at a neighborhood barbecue in Southern California, and the attendees at this barbecue were marveling at the luck of the owner having an avocado tree in their yard. I saw what looked like oversized walnuts, and then green, smushy, slimy stuff on the interior. I did not touch them for years, and did not think that the owner was lucky to have a snot tree in his backyard. (laughs) But now I have discovered. Avocados convince me that God is good. He has made avocados. And perhaps their rough exterior and their oversized seed and their green, smushy goodness can forever remind me that I am not innately familiar with what is good. And what is good for me. Because avocados are a superfood. After all. We do not know what is good. We do not innately understand it all. We must learn. The scriptures, they guide us. In Exodus, God is revealing himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgressions in sin. God is for you, and he's not against you, and his character is good. These aren't on the screen, but a couple of verses out of the Psalms. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. Psalm 86, you, Lord, are so good and forgiving. You are so full of unfailing love for all who call upon you. Psalm 100, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. His will is good. He intends good. The second point about God's will today God's will is not for evil. God's will is not for evil. The Bible is clear in James 1 13 through 15 that God does not cause evil. James writes, No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then, when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Tim Keller comments on this passage. He says, God does not cause evil, but he does allow it as a part of the mystery of his plan and purpose. The passage makes it clear that God doesn't cause evil, but rather allows us to be tempted by our own desires. Now, why does God allow this temptation? Tim Keller elaborates further, and we've talked about this before. The Bible's answer is that God allows evil to exist because of human freedom. He has given us the power to choose and act freely, but this also means that we can use that freedom to do evil. And by the way, if you are walking through suffering in your life, his great book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, is very helpful, and that's where that quote comes from. God is ultimately good... And holy, and his will is not evil, and yet evil exists in the world in part as a result of the freedom that he's given us so that we can freely choose him, but in being able to freely choose him, we can also freely unchoose him, and so disaster comes into our lives, and we can all tell the story of how that's worked out for us. We don't have to make that a grand philosophical statement. We can make it very personal. We recognize that our choices and the choice of those around us have caused great harm, which isn't God's desire. The third point, God has limitless ability to use evil for good. For me, this is the most amazing part. We see this in the story of Joseph. We see this most preeminently with Jesus dying on the cross, the most evil and heinous act of all to crucify the perfect son of God. And yet God was able to use that for beauty and for good. And this is the most amazing part. God doesn't cause evil. God has allowed it and then transforms evil into good. As a young boy, I was cast into a season of aloneness. I was bullied by some neighborhood boys who were indebted to me for the organization of the daily game of football, and they ganged up on me one day. And walking home with a tear stained face, I felt and I remember feeling God's presence in that aloneness that I was experiencing with my tear stained face. I can see that God cultivated a compassion and a love for others, a sympathy for others. And some of you, as you've met with me and wept in my office, you've been the beneficiary of how God transformed evil, which was intended to harm me, and created good out of it. Now, allow me to qualify this statement about God has limitless ability to use evil for good. We don't always, or maybe even often, know how God uses evil for good. We do not not have the capacity as humans to know the the grand mysteries of God. As Paul is describing how God has used the the cross to bring about his purposes, he says in the eyes of the world, it's foolishness. In other words, we don't have the ability to comprehend how God is using uh, bad circumstances or difficulty for good, but we are invited into a posture of trusting him. Again, those verses from Genesis 50. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. I'm not in the place of God. That's probably a phrase that we could stand to use quite a bit. Am I in the place of God? Do I have the ability to understand? When God is confronting Job, he's, he's like, who, who caused the snows to come from the clouds? Were you there doing that, Job? Who, who caused the, the waters of the deep to come out of there? Were you there, Job? Joseph rightly says, Am I in the place of God? The modern American has a hard time saying that. We think that we are. Even though you, Joseph said to his brothers, intended to harm me, God intended it or repurposed it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. Judo comes to mind. Judo. And this martial art form, which, is, which is, utilizes the momentum of the opponent so the opponent defeats itself. We call it judo love. You, you come at me and I use your momentum to conquer you. <laughs> evil comes at and God in his great ability to, as a judo master to take that evil and translate it into good. Again, the cross being the ultimate example of God's judo love. God used the momentum of Joseph's brothers to bring about good. Now, could the same be true of you and I? Absolutely. We are no different than the characters in the scriptures. The God of the scriptures is the same God that reigns today. But I think we're often caught up in a world that is so used to controlling outcomes. And so when the outcomes don't go according to what we think they should be, we don't trust God to bring about good. We think there's something wrong with the machine that we call God. And then we tend to stick our nose in God's business and demand that we are to know what his will is. And he simply says to us, just want what I want and watch me create good. I think that this picture came to my mind this last week that often in our struggles we lash about like a fish out of water forgetting that we are swimming in the waters of salvation. So we lash about Holding our breath when what we need to do is inhale in faith and receive that, oh no, he is for us. He is not against us. Oh no, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is Christ. Oh no, that we need not fear life or death or anything at all because nothing can separate us from God's love. We've been found within Christ. Oh no, we do not need to fear because we're ultimately looking forward to resurrection this life is but a glimpse and in the life that is to come we will rule and reign with Christ. We are living for and in the context of eternity and so we should allow our lives to be a testament of that trust. Our lives are not a testament when we just think that everything has gone well for us and that's the only testimony that we can give to the world. But rather, what we have to give to the world is what the world is intended for evil. What my family has intended for evil. What this life as intended for evil my own evil actions oh my goodness the grace of god knows no bounds and he's able to translate all of that into goodness watch my god work the same god of joseph is the same god of jesus on the cross is the same god who gives the spirit to empower us to remind us of his goodness to bring us back to him so that we say over and again your will be done because the world is safe in your hands Will Williman writes this in a great book called Lord Teach Us. He wrote in conjunction with Stanley Harawas. They both wrote the book. I know both authors, and I think this is what Will wrote because it sounds like him. But anyway, he said, while not everything that happens in this world happens because God wants it that way, there are still too many murderous brothers and sisters to believe that. Sometimes, looking back on your life, the twists and turns, it's amazing how well it all fits, as if there were a hand, an overriding purpose, a divine intent, as God means it to be so. Hmm. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are giving over our desires so that our desires are shaped to be shaped to want what God wants. And the more we pray in this way, the more we are shaped by it. We learn to realize that God's will is not ultimately about my life, but is about my life as it's hidden in Christ and about the life of others. Every saint of God, every Christian, can die trusting that God has used the good of their life and the evil of life and is translating it for good. But I want to hear from you, because I've sat with you enough to know these are challenging dynamics for us. I believe that we could go throughout history and we would find so many pockets in which people did not struggle with trusting an omnipotent, all-powerful God. But we do, because we've been taught we are the powerful ones. We are the knowledgeable ones. So I want to hear your pushback. Here's the two questions that you'll respond to today. What conflict arises in you in regard to these three points? One, God's will is for good, or God's will is not evil, or God has limitless ability to make good from evil. What conflict? Where do you push back? What about these three points confirms what you are learning or what you know? Now, I will not share who has shared what with me. It will be anonymous. But if you still do not want me to share what you write, just please start your text with the word private. Um, but I want to hear from you. Um, after three minutes, I'll read back a few responses and invite you to join the conversation. Okay, the number's up there. You have three minutes. Ready? Go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, many responses, a few just coming in. And as I thought, you're, you're very um, thoughtful. So thank you. I'm going to read a few conflicts. And uh, now as you, as you hear what people are either struggling with or what they're saying, um, this is just an opportunity to see what God's Spirit is sparking among us, and it might affirm something. You might hear things that you don't agree with, and that's that's totally fine. Um, so, don't. I hope you're not threatened by that. All right. <clears throat> Start off with a really big one. Conflict. It's hard to understand when when evil happens not based on another's free will but simply a tragedy, such as a three-year-old child dying of cancer. And I know we have these kinds of stories right in our midst. And for some of you, this is very particular. And I would not dare to try to explain all that away at all. It's a a really important question. Here's some conflict born out of uh, some experience, I think. Here's the conflict. One thing I have experienced and witnessed is how the Christian community can use the phrase, God's will is for good, in a way that gaslights the experience of suffering that someone is experiencing. Yeah. Yes, it is for good, and someday, maybe soon, maybe decades later, one will learn the purpose. However, this person writes, I would urge caution in applying that phrase to individuals who are freshly experiencing pain. It minimizes their experience and can make that someone not feel heard or seen for what they are going through. That's good pastoral wisdom right there. Yep. Yep. That's really good. Here's another conflict. It's hard to keep positive or know that God's will is good when there have been so many trials in our family, so much hurt and betrayal by my own blood. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Hmm. Here's a question. Why is it that healing takes so long or may never happen on this side? And if it doesn't happen, how can that be good? Yeah. it's a great question. I'm going to come, come back to some of these things. So, um, <clears throat> Hmm, here's another person. I tend to get frustrated in the moment because I want control of my life or I don't see how God is working. However, the longer I'm alive and the more I look back, I can see his hand moving and working it all for good. Yeah. Hmm, okay, okay. Uh, Final conflict. (laughs) Ending on a lighter note here. (laughs) I'm going to read this, because maybe we need some levity. Conflict. God's will is always good, and yet the 49ers lost both of their quarterbacks to injury, and no good comes from the Eagles going to the Super Bowl. (laughs) All right. Well, I could probably guess who wrote that, but I don't to... <laughs> Yeah, all right. Okay, some confirming. Um, I don't have a difficulty trusting Jesus. I have a difficulty trusting myself to trust him. It's like, oh, yeah, Jesus, you're good, and I want to step out of the boat. Yeah, but, yeah, that's really well said. Thank you. I'm going to have that person write parts of my sermon so they're memorable. <laughs> hmm. Pain and suffering and injustices are experienced when we are in God's will, as we draw in an intimate love relationship with Him he will let us perceive in the Spirit his kind sovereignty and his workings that will come to pass in his time despite all the contrary present circumstances. Oh, that's good. Hmm. This person said, if you were to ask me this question 15 years ago, I would have a lot to say about conflicting with it, like trusting that God's, will is good but I have seen God make a good work out of the evil in my life he brought me back to him at my lowest time going through a divorce and at the same time watching my parents get divorced I was at rock bottom he lifted me up and has provided so much good and through and uh, so much good through that very dark time God doesn't cause evil but he absolutely can make good from evil when we give it to him that's well said another one uh, similar, divorced parents, abusive stepdad, all brought me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God using evil for good—a confirming point. <laughs> I can think of many examples of God using evil for good, also many examples of evil where it's so hard to imagine good coming from it. We don't always have the ability to zoom out or to extrapolate on the level required to understand. It's like the five-letter word, Danya said this morning. T-R-U-S-T. We have to trust God in these things. Yeah. This person, I feel as if my life has been a master class on God turning what was meant for evil into good. When you consider the abuse and neglect I grew up under, not uh, only to have the grace of God lead me out of the shadows and into his light, I believe God's in God's limitless ability to change everything. Hmm. Ah, oh. Hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's several more. If I didn't read yours, I'm not ignoring you. It's just, um, yeah. Hmm. Somebody wrote a clarifying point. They said, perhaps this is too fine of a point, but I think God uses man's evil situations or intentions for good rather than makes good from evil. Yeah, I can see the point that is being made there. Okay, all right. Um, well, we certainly what was evoked within us is how do you wrestle with the the evil in the world that is um, not you know directly correlated to somebody making a you know a choice that can be a natural disaster or children and things or accidents you know that are purely accidents. And I am not going to try to explain all of those things. The only thing that I will say is I have watched and experienced people receive tremendous amounts of healing through the relationship with God in the midst of those things. And what I would encourage people is to not look at far-off situations in which you are not a part of it and think that God's grace isn't able to touch those who are really touched by it. Um, Because we can get into a philosophical conundrum by putting ourselves in situations that we are not in. What I remind Donnie and I say to each other regularly is whatever we go through, God's grace will be there. And if we're trying to imagine on behalf of somebody else, God's grace being there or not, we we don't, that's not our situation. Um, But I, I have listened to people walk through that. Also, you know, a couple of people brought up the idea of God healing in the midst of, you know, um, healing not happening in this reality. And the question, very good question, how can that be good? And again, I would just say, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of, of God or try to answer that in some sort of flippant way because I'm sure for you, it doesn't feel good at all. Um, but I would come back to, you know, Uh, Even if one is simply a model of suffering in the context of trust for others, I can't fathom how much good can ultimately come out of that. Seeds being planted for people that are maybe only ready to believe God if God does everything they want, or rather seeing somebody with trust and faith when it's not going the way that you want. As I look at this message and reading your responses I recognize there's far more nuance to this than what a message or sermon can address. So uh, I hope that you hear that. Additionally, I hope you hear that we live in an era in which it is terribly difficult to trust God because we, we, we trust ourselves so much. You know that scripture, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I've told you before that our culture has inverted that. We trust in ourselves with all of our heart and we lean on our own understanding. In all of our ways we acknowledge ourselves and trust ourselves to make our, our path straight. We invert that. It's just the way that our culture is. So it's very difficult for us. Very difficult. Well in the end just moving to the final Encouragement before we receive communion together. And, you know, I'll respond to some of you during this week with some questions you have. But we learn to pray through the Lord's Prayer a way that God doesn't just invite us to pray. Like us, you know, measly humans subjected to this grand will of God. But actually, it's the same prayer that Jesus himself prayed, not his will but the Father's will. Facing the moment of his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, somebody was listening to what Jesus prayed and it's recorded for us in a way that is just tremendous. Going a little further, Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup that I'm about to drink, he was about to die on the cross, he knew it was coming, He said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And there's a semicolon there. (laughs) We don't know how long it took for Jesus to finish the sentence. But the scriptures say he was sweating great drops of blood, the stress of giving himself over. And he said, yet, not what I want, but what you want. Or said in other translations, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus, who was tempted and tried like any of us, and yet continued to make the right choices, gives us the model. He doesn't just say to us cavalierly, just pray God's will be done. But he himself was the ultimate example for us, saying, I entrust myself In my death, be glorified. So certainly we can say with our whole lives, in my life or in my death, be glorified. Your will and not mine be done. In the Latin, it was common for churches down through the ages to say to each other regularly, Deo valente, which means as God allows. And it used to be that church signs, like advertising there when they would meet, there'd be a little DV. Maybe you've seen that before. That means we're going to be here at 10 o'clock on Sunday, God willing, (laughs) as God allows. DV, Deo Valente. And so our lives, as we learn to pray this prayer, is simply not my will, but yours be done. Your will, which is good. You who are working all these things together, I trust you. I trust you, and I even submit my biggest questions to you. Your will be done. It's a courageous prayer, isn't it? Isn't it just audacious of God to ask us to pray that way? We have a list of questions. God's able to hear those. But ultimately, he's God, and we are not.